to the Cake Sugar Coach podcast. Join me each week as I interview experts who will share the science of sugar, sugar addiction, and different approaches to recovery. We hope to empower you with the information and inspiration, insights, and strategies you need to break up with sugar and fall in love with healthy whole foods so you can prevent and reverse chronic disease, lose weight, boost your mood, and energy. Feel free to go to my website for details on my coaching programs and to access free resources, kicksugarcoach.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to have with me today, Dr. Emily August, and her bio is basically this. She's a professor, associate professor, actually, at uh, Stockton University, where she teaches 19th century British literature and culture, medical humanities, literatures of crime and detection, creative writing, her poetry, and she has her own books of poetry, and she's got a book of poetry coming out, and it investigates topics of intergenerational trauma and intimate partner violence. And her poems have been previously published in literary journals. And uh, Emily, do you have a book out yet? Or is your first book about to come out? It's my first book. I'm so excited. Amazing. Amazing. And of course, on top of all of this, scholarly genius and poetic genius, she has her own story of recovery. And she's discovered as she's been walking this path, as she likes to say, she's trying to create a space in the recovery movement and conversation Um, for people who are not served by food addiction recovery programs and people who are not being served by eating disorder recovery approaches as well. So she's got this this kind of unique uh, insight into other ways of getting the job done of finding recovery. So welcome, Dr. August. Thank you. (laughs) So let's start with your story. I don't actually even know it. So tell me a bit about your own journey of recovery from, I'm assuming, sugar addiction, food addiction. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So um, I come from a background of just um, long time, what what I now identify as food addiction and understand as food addiction. Um, Ever since childhood, I experienced um, binge eating disorder. Um, I experienced um, addictive sort of um, and increasingly addictive uh, behavior around food. Um, You know, I was one of those people who just from early childhood always never understood why I couldn't eat like other people, um, why I couldn't relate to food like other people. Um, and just over the decades of my life, um, as with any kind of chronic progressive condition, my food addiction just got worse and worse and impeded my ability to engage in everyday life, um, more and more. So by my early thirties, um, I was really, um, suffering a lot of health problems, but also just a lot of psychological problems um, related to what what I describe as just being chained to food um, and other addictive substances. Um, I was a smoker. I was a pack-a-day smoker for 18 years. Um, and I now sort of, I can identify that um, I was a practicing alcoholic that whole time as well. Um, and so my life really sort of um, had gotten pretty bleak um, where I would just sort of go to work, come home and engage in my addictions. And that was my cycle, um, every single day for many, many years, chronically and progressively. And that's kind of the very, very short version, um, of how I, how I was living my life before food addiction recovery. Um, I had always, or or from a very young age, I had identified as a binge 
as a binge eater, that I had binge eating disorder. I'd heard of that. That was sort of in the ether in the 90s, like that terminology. And when I had originally read the symptoms of binge eating disorder as kind of a teenager, I was like, oh, right. You know, I, I, um, I recognize that, um, all of the sort of classic symptoms. Um, and then I would at various times in my life try to moderate, I guess, try to address, um, my relationship to food. And sometimes that would last for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And sometimes that was not possible at all. And I had reached a point in my twenties, I think probably by my early twenties or at least my mid twenties where I just let that go. Um, I think a lot of us who um, sort of experience food addiction without really knowing exactly what that is, I think a lot of us reach that point. Um, I just, you know, I was on a kind of parallel journey of self-discovery like we all are throughout my teenage and um, young young 20s and just coming increasingly into my own, increasingly into my own self-confidence and my own kind of direction for my life. And part of that is just allowing yourself to, to kind of be who you are and just sort of setting aside the, the, um, the drama and, and the, um, uh, I'm not quite sure of the word, but, but the difficulty of, of trying to, to do something that is not working. And so I was like, look, this is for whatever reason, I don't know why, but when I start eating, I can't stop. I eat until I'm in pain, in debilitating pain. Um, I do this every day. I don't know why, and I can't seem to stop doing it. And I'm just going to let that go. This is this is who I am. This is how I was made. There's there's nothing I can do about that. And so I came to some peace about it. Um, but it but it was still difficult to live a life of addiction, you know. Um, and so once I discovered, I finally I. I I think it was in my thirties, I decided to try to give it one last go. Um, I went to a therapist um, who specialized in part in eating disorder recovery and just, just kind of eating disorders. Um, and I was like, okay, let me give this one last shot. Um, and she was the one who introduced me to the addiction model and to abstinence-based recovery. And as I investigated that more through like YouTube videos and information online, it was so obvious. It was like, that moment of revelation when the heavens open and everything clicks. And I was like, right, that's why I can't stop eating. I'm addicted. Obviously it was so obvious. It's just that no one had ever communicated it in that language to me before. And I had some experience with abstinence-based concepts um, previously in my life. As a teenager, I um, was sent to AA for a little bit. when it became obvious really quite early that I was, um, that I had substance abuse, um, just kind of as a part of my life. Um, and so as a teenager, I had gone to AA, I'd read the big book. I kind of had, um, some of those concepts percolating in the back of my mind for many decades, even though I didn't continue on with AA, um, after like, you know, I went, I think for about a year or something like that. And then of course I quit smoking, um, a year before I started, um, food addiction recovery. And so, you know, quitting smoking is, um, you really come to terms with what it feels like to, to be addicted to something and to, um, eliminate that and just, um, how real addiction is, um, and what the physiological, the psychological, the emotional, um, 
you know, fallout of addiction is. Yeah. Is that <laughs> great? You're doing am, great. Am I meandering everywhere? No, you're not. You're riveting. Just keep oh, on your speed. Yeah. Just yeah. keep on your story. This is incredible. I keep oh. looking at you thinking she's a professor and she, has, <laughs> she started to, th- she was in a in her teens. Like it's amazing that your brain has survived and you can be here to tell us the story of what it's like to really know triple three times you've had to unhook from addiction. So this is really incredible. Keep going. Oh, you're very sweet. Thank you. Um, I think about that a lot. Um, it, it is, it is such a miracle to me that I, that I made it through addiction and recovery. Um, yes. So let's see. Oh yeah. So I was introduced to food addiction recovery through Brightline Eating, uh, a program that, you know, um, many people are becoming increasingly familiar with. Um, and that's kind of how I was able to link my, because, um, Brightline Eating, it's, it's doing a couple of different things, but one of the things that it's doing is, um, sort of modeling itself on, um, an abstinence-based, a kind of classic, um, you know, 12 steps abstinence-based model of addiction recovery. So I was familiar with that. I was comfortable with that. Um, it was a good entry point for me and, and, um, the neuroscience around addiction, um, is very compelling and very irrefutable and just very much what my life experience is. Um, you know, we're, we're in a cultural moment in which, um, and this kind of speaks to maybe what we'll talk about a bit later, but we're in a cultural moment in which there's a lot of gaslighting around addiction and around abstinence. Um, and there's a lot of shaming around abstinence-based addiction recovery. And it's, it's a difficult time to, be an abstinence-based addiction recovery. Um, it's not a popular time to, uh, <laughs> to be an addict and to believe in addiction um, in our culture. Um, and so it can be difficult to stand strongly and confidently in one's experience as an addict um, and, and to be able to embrace that, I, that experience and that identity as being honestly, I mean, sure, valid and real, but just neutral. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. Um, most of us have some kind of health condition. Many of us have chronic health conditions. Addiction is just another chronic health condition. Um, and it's, it's, it's a chronic health condition that I believe in that many, most of us experience as requiring abstinence as a management protocol. And again, that's just value neutral. It doesn't have to be good or bad. It doesn't have to be right or wrong. And it doesn't have to be everybody's answer. Um, but we, we live in a moment in which um, that's not very popular. Emily, what do you mean by, by, by gaslighting? And why do you think it's not popular right now? Yeah, so... Um, what I noticed when I entered, so I entered food addiction recovery through Brightline Eating. And what I noticed was, and I'd been familiar with um, the idea of moderation um, since childhood. I mean, moderation in, in, um, in eating disorder recovery and moderation as an approach, approach to eating is nothing new. Uh, you know, my, I, I remember reading about those kinds of ideas. I remember 
seeing books from the 70s and 80s that um, advocated what we now call a, a moderation approach. Um, so I've always been kind of familiar with that. And I always knew I was a person who could not moderate. I have never been able to moderate anything. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm a classic addict. I have the, the, the neurology and the, the, the brain chemistry and the physiology of an addict. Um, and that's, that is what it is. Um, you know, my lived experiences is, is that I cannot moderate any addictive substance and I never have been able to. Um, when I entered Brightline Eating um, with an abstinence-based model, um, it became so, I became so much more acutely aware of how unpopular abstinence is um, in our current cultural moment. Abstinence is very much aligned with restriction. Um, with, um, when it's applied to food, it's very much aligned with dieting. Um, it's very much aligned with, um, you know, shaming and, um, withholding and punitive, um, sort of ideologies around one's relationship to one's body. And I see exactly where that comes from. And I don't, I don't necessarily fault anyone for having, um, strong resistance to the idea of abstinence. Um, we have a long history in Western culture of um, horrible body shaming, fat phobia, um, dietary management, body management, all kinds of toxic, just a toxic cloud that really surrounds um, our the way we approach food in the body, in our culture. Um, and things like restriction, um, um, you know, negative diet, cultural diet, culture messaging, those things are pervasive and harmful. Um, and they have harmed all of us. Um, and so I understand why people associate abstinence with, with basically diet culture when we're talking about food addiction recovery. Um, it's just that I don't, that's not how I see abstinence. Um, and I, and I don't necessarily even see moderation as like, um, a, a count, an opposite of that. Um, I was really privileged to grow up in <clears throat> basically a body neutral, uh, fat positive fat activist household. So I never, I never had that experience as a young person, as a teenager of growing up in a household in the environment that nurtures you and the environment that's supposed to protect you and growing up with really negative shaming messages around my body. I never had that. Um, my mom was always very explicit about, um, you know, the, the body is a value neutral biological object. It is, it's a collection of systems and cells and organs that function a, a, across a spectrum. Um, there's nothing good about the body. There's nothing bad about the body in any shape, form, presentation. It just is what it is. And it functions how it functions. And we do what we can to maximize the function of, of the meat sack in which we have found ourselves. Um, and so I, I'm almost kind of uniquely positioned to, to come into our current cultural moment in which moderation is... Um, you know, it's, it's kind of presented as, um, the only viable, healthy, 
and politically sound because it's not just about physiology, biology, and psychology, but it's, but, you know, food and bodies are political. And in our current moment, moderation is, is like the, um, the political good, the, the, and abstinence is the political evil. And I see how people got there. Um, and I, I don't, I don't disagree with how people got there. I just don't think that that is the only option. And so what I mean by gaslighting is what I'm seeing in um, eating, current eating disorder treatment, right? Um, current clinical protocols around eating disorder recovery are all of the institutional resources are put into moderation. Um, anyone who comes into traditional mainstream clinical eating disorder treatment that I've heard from um, is really pushed toward moderation. Anybody who cannot moderate um, is, is sort of um, defined as somehow aberrant or wrong. Um, and that the, the goal is to get somebody to moderate. And if you're not, if you're not able to do that, there's something wrong with you because there's something wrong with abstinence. Abstinence is restrictive. Abstinence is um, shaming and negative and wrong and it doesn't work. Um, and so to me, that's, um, you know, a, a friend of mine in the Brightline Eating community, Dr. Joy Jacobs, talks a lot about how that creates an environment of gaslighting for addicts, for people in addiction recovery, for whom abstinence is simply a necessary um, choice, help, yeah, management protocol. And, you know, can I add the word um, impossible? That I think that there's people who think that that it's unnecessary, it's psychologically unhealthy, all those things that you listed. But I think there's also this undercurrent of it's impossible. So why set women up to try and achieve this perfect abstinence when it's impossible and they're going to fail? You're setting women up for this mm. constant feeling of like, oh, I, I'm on day one again. Absolutely. I'm just taking um, a note here. Yeah. That's such a great point. And so, again, that's such another great um great example of why it has been politically necessary to move away from, um, from diet culture, from restriction, from, from all of these super negative, from, um, you know, perfection oriented, um, um, you know, toxic bodily, um, negativity in that way. Absolutely. And I, I am part of that cultural movement as well. I am, you know, I, I very much consider myself a fat liberationist, a body activist. Um, you know, my abstinence-based eating disorder recovery doesn't engage with weight or size or body image at all. It's unrelated. It's, it's totally unrelated. Like what I look like and how much, how much mass my like molecules take up on the planet. I just, I have way more interesting things to think about than that. Um, <clears throat> But yes, these, these unattainable um, bodies that have been used to discipline us and punish us and shape us um, and correct us into these um, unhealthy, um, obedient you know, subjects. Um, absolutely, we have to move away from that. And we also have to move away from the idea that abstinence-based recovery is the same as that. It's not, it just isn't. And that's okay too. Um, and Yes, abstinence is hard. Um, I think managing a chronic health condition is hard. 
Um, and there are times anybody with any chronic health condition, asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, whatever it is, are going to have periods of time where it feels impossible to, to manage that health condition um, or where the protocols feel unimplementable. Um, and also we'll have times when, when they are just day-to-day managing that condition in the background. I think what makes abstinence the truly difficult is the environment of gaslighting, is the environment of shaming um, towards people for whom abstinence is necessary. Um, but it's, it is not impossible. And there's millions of us living that, that life. It, it is possible to walk away from sugar and flour and live like a full, rich, beautiful, nuanced, um, politically radical life. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Okay. Um, where would you like to go from here? Um, yeah, good question. Uh, I feel like I'm meandering a little bit. So, um, if I circle back or anything, forgive me. Um, I can talk a little bit about, um, so one of the, one of the things that's been, that, that has, um, sort of helped me stay abstinent, um, and helped me on my journey of, of abstinence is community, right? Um, finding a community. And that's kind of why I want to make an intervention in this arena. Why, um, you know, my experience in traditional food addiction recovery is that it actually, it actually is very weight focused. It is very body focused. It is um, very size focused. Um, I think one of the terms in like traditional, um, like overeaters anonymous and other kind of 12 step abstinence based recovery. I don't remember the term exactly, but it's something like physical recovery is one of the goals of those programs, which means weight loss. Um, and that's like very, I'm very allergic to that ideology. I'm very allergic to that terminology. It's, um, and I, I haven't found an abstinence-based food addiction community that is not imbricated with diet culture. And so that, that is painful for me. It's, it's painful. I, I, can see, I, I can totally see why people don't, aren't drawn toward, and even people who feel like they might be food addicts and people who feel like they might benefit from abstinence. I can see why people don't want to join up with these communities. Um, the diet culture is pervasive and it's, um, really harmful and it's just not, (laughs) it just doesn't serve me. And there's so many of us that it doesn't serve. And I have over the past five years, um, I entered food addiction recovery just over five years ago. Um, I have built up an approach to food addiction recovery that, that leaves diet culture in the dust that doesn't engage with diet culture at all. Um, but that still follows a general, um, protocol of, um, abstinence gleaned from many traditions. Um, so there's, there's a whole community of people in abstinence-based food addiction recovery that, that aren't being served because of the diet culture ideologies. And then there's a whole community of people in moderation-based eating disorder recovery who aren't being served because their bodies don't moderate. 
you know, their bodies, the bodies that they came into this world with their brain chemistry, their physiology are not set up for moderation. Um, and I'm one of those people and there's lots of us out there and again, value neutral, there's nothing right or wrong with that. It just, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole drama. It just is what it is. And there needs, there needs to be a massive movement and cultural conversation and, and coming together of people who require abstinence and who um, are not interested in diet culture. And so that is the community that I've tried really painstakingly to cultivate over the past five years. Um, there are a lot of barriers to, to bringing together a community of this kind because there's like, it's like the, it's like the, it's like the Capulets and the Montagues or something. I don't even know if that's the right reference, but it's like these warring houses. There's like not a, there's no way that people in these two communities are coming together. It's like a lot of fighting and a lot of disagreement. And I see that we have more in common than not. And I see that we could all benefit. Any of us who need eating disorder recovery can benefit from having these two communities come together in conversation in places that we intersect. Um, I learn a lot from um, people in the moderation community, um, especially because most of those people have political goals aligned with mine. My political goals around the body are our fat liberation, our um, body liberation, um, you know, any body of any shape, size, presentation gets to be a human, gets to take up the space it takes, gets to have civil rights, um, gets to have love and desire and pleasure and success. Um, and so my political goals are really aligned with people who tend toward um, the moderation approach. Um, but my health management goals are aligned with abstinence. And so if, that's, if that describes you as well, seek me out. I am slowly, painstakingly building up a community of us and, and hopefully eventually a movement of us who are, who are approaching, who are um, embracing abstinence, which is a way of approaching life that has existed um, for centuries. Uh, many, many, many centuries. Um, but, you know, there's nothing new about abstinence. There's nothing particularly radical or not about abstinence. Um, it crosses cultures. Um, you know, it's 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 possible. It's achievable. It's fine. It's just a way of of doing life, and you can still do that way of life and um, and support holistic nurturing body politics. Hmm, interesting. And you know what, and, and, and there's a whole other camp. And I love this whole conversation around having these two seemingly well on the continuum, they're on the far ends of the continuum, come together and have some rich conversations about the intersection, as you said, because there is a lot to learn from the moderation camp. Because let's say they're on the addiction spectrum, and they're desperately trying to moderate, they are going to be forced or encouraged and supported to do the inner work because they're not doing abstinence. And some of the recovery and the tools and the insights and the, and the nurturing that happens because they're looking at 
okay. I don't want to say no, never again, never forever. I want to figure out how to moderate. So what can I do in this moment to ask myself, I know I don't really need to go to the kitchen and look for something to eat. What do I really need? And all that beautiful healing recovery work is wonderful. And for many, many of us, no matter how much we do that, it is never going to bring the peace that walking the path of abstinence will bring. But it doesn't mean it's wrong and not valuable. And so there's this cross potential and that there's people over here doing this incredibly intense inner healing recovery work. And on all levels, body, mind, spirit, the holistic recovery that you're talking about, nurturing, and, you know, that we can pull from there and vice versa. And some of these people that are doing this work will go, oh, my gosh, I mean, I just make a decisive decision to break up a sugar and flour and something shifts. I stop craving. I stop food obsessing. I stop fussing. It just whew, a peace comes over me. And what a, what a wonderful way for people to move back and forth with the insights and the different approaches. Yeah, because I agree that as a team, we'll cover, we'll catch more people. The other thing that's happening is I'm starting to see this now, and I just have a client now myself who's just finding the middle road where six days of the week, she does the delay, don't deny approach. Six days of the week, she eats her absent meals, three meals, no snacks. And on Sunday, she says to herself, you can have whatever you want. One. Now, some people's a whole day. For her, it's just one treat. You let me know. What is it? I'm never going to say never again to you. But here's the deal. When we go to the DQ and get whatever the heck you, the ice cream you think that you want, when it's over, it's over. And if you fuss and cry and moan and arch your back and pitch a fit because you want more, the answer is going to be no. And if this is too hard on me and too difficult to manage, it will be never forever. And she is going into months of extraordinary recovery. She's actually come to the Sundays and has said to her body, Sunday, what would you like? And the body's like, I'm good. She hasn't even gone to, right? So that freaks out both camps because they don't know what to do with someone like that. Right. And there's all these nuanced approaches in between the two extremes of moderation is the goal. That is a sign that you're recovered because you can moderate or the sign of recovery in the other camp is you are abstinent and perfectly in every day in every way. Right. And it just muddies everything when we've got people coming up the middle to find some kind of sweet spot that works for them. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful because I don't think that the opposite of addiction is abstinence. I think the opposite of addiction is options, is choice. You and I choose to be abstinent. I don't want moderation. If I had a fairy godmother that could tap me on the top of my head and say, you know, you can now moderate. I'd be like, no, thanks. No, that's not the wish I want. Right. But what do we do with those people either who are not there yet? Or that isn't what they want, but they also don't want to do the intuitive eating thing. They've done that path. It was a disaster. It was just months and years of binging. So I don't know what, what you'd like to say to that. Yeah. That's the term I've been looking for this whole time. Intuitive eating. Um, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So great. Uh, my mind is going a thousand miles an hour. Um, one thing I will say is um, all of that. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful. And that we can learn from each other. And that one of the things, um, you know, I, I was just, I was raised as a person who, um, 
you know, it was a priority that I, the way I was raised, that I was taught how to learn from anything, like anything you can learn from, take what you can learn from that and just leave the rest, which is, you know, a famous saying in recovery culture, but um, it's kind of like one of the principles I was raised in is um, find the thing that you can learn from this. And so not only do we have a lot to learn from each other and that for some people, there may be a middle way, um, but about inner work, um, because, you know, people in abstinence-based recovery who, who, who stay in lifelong abstinence are, are doing the hardcore inner work. Um, that's, you know, abstinence requires kind of two parallel tracks. And one of them is, is abstinence. And one of them is the inner work that allows you to build a, a new life in the shape of abstinence. Um, and that requires gobs of inner work. Um, a lot of people are really resistant to the 12 steps um, for, for many perfectly wonderful and fine reasons. Um, I really see the 12 steps as just another path of inner work. Honestly, I see them as like journaling prompts. You know, they're, they're a set of 12 questions that are going to get you somewhere on your, um, on your journey of self-actualization. Um, any, any spirituality, any religion has similar questions that it asks of, of life experience. Just draw, for, just pick, pick a path of inner work. It could be the 12 steps. Um, you can leave the God language in there or take it out. Um, it can be, um, um, you know, Buddhist koans. It can be, um, I'm reading this, um, fascinating Christian theology theory of, of addiction and recovery right now. Um, I think it's called something like the beautiful letdown, a theology of addiction or something like that. Um, it's heavily Christian. I, I, I don't, if you, if you have a lot of trauma around, around Christianity, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I grew up in a non-religious household. Um, and so I don't get as triggered and I can kind of easily scrape away, um, some of the language and, and ideas that don't work and replace them with others. Um, but there's, my point is there's so many ways of, of doing the inner work, whether you're doing abstinence or moderation, um, or intuitive eating or whatever it is. Um, that, that's, that's what makes us all whole anyway, right? Um, the most peaceful and nurturing life path is always going to be a path of deep, consistent, sustained inner work. Um, what I would, what I also want to say is, um, I, I also have, have come a little bit to my own version of, of a marriage of the two or an intermingling of the two, where after several years of abstinence, um, what I realized very quickly when I eliminated sugar and flour from my diet, uh, paired with um, the inner work of becoming a person in recovery, what I discovered very quickly is that um, I could finally, there, there's like this incredible brain healing that happens. And that's true of, um, you know, um, someone in um, alcohol recovery. That's true of someone in uh, drug recovery. Um, the, the healing that happens to your brain chemistry um, when you're, when you abstain from the, the toxic substance that um, is, is triggering the, um, the, the neurochemical reaction it's kind of, um, and you know, people in recovery talk about this all the time. It's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. I never knew it was even possible to like 
feel that like the way that I feel day to day is I didn't even know it was part of the human experience. I was like, people walk around feeling like this, just a level of contented sort of even keeled, you know, contentment, happiness, joy. Um, and one of the things that happened, and I was deliberate about this too, it didn't happen by accident. I, I really trained my attention on what, ha- what is happening to my body now that I have abstained? What is happening to my body now that it doesn't consume sugar and flour? What does it feel like to be in my body? What do foods taste like? What kinds of foods? I did, my, I did intuitive eating within the brackets of abstinence. And that is still what I do, um, is that I built up over time a, no, a knowledge of my body. I learned my body. I learned what kinds of foods that feel fueling and energizing to my body and what kind of foods sort of drag my body down. Um, I learned what times of day I'm most hungry at. And so that's when I should time my meals. Um, I learned kind of like people talk about macros, um, whatever. I just learned kind of roughly the quantities of food of each kinds of foods that are most fueling to me and most empowering to me. Um, and I do that all within the, the boundaries of abstinence. I still eat no sugar. I eat no flour. I eat three meals a day. Um, and I, and I, um, bound my quantities consistently. Um, but I developed my own kind of food plan intuitively by really training a deep attention to, to my body and what it was like. What I say often in, in my, my community is that, um, the only way that I could hear my body finally was by eliminating sugar and flour. That is how I am able to do intuitive eating at all. That is how I am able to hear the rhythms of my body that were obscured by the noise of addiction, um, of the addiction response. Um, so it, it's still possible. It's not like you're, um, it's not like you're denying your body and effacing your body. If you, if you practice abstinence for me, it's the only, it's, it's removing, um, a, a white noise machine. It's, it's removing a barrier and it's, um, removing a film and, and getting clarity. Oh gosh, that's so beautifully articulated. I can see why you're a poet. <laughs> I'll be a writer too. I, I am looking forward to your book coming out. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so much to unpack there for me. One of the things I wanted to add to our conversation is that in my early days of recovery, I first tried the intuitive because I grew up on Janine Roth, right? I grew up on when you're hungry, eat what you want, intuitively choose the foods. If it's, if it's M&Ms, it's M&Ms. Eat when you're stopped, when you're full, right? And it was all like, take all the diet out of it, all the feelings of deprivation or control and restriction and, and denial. And I love the word that you use, which was punishment. Like I'm being left out, like I'm unloved, like I don't get to have chocolate, right? She took all that out of the equation. I could not find recovery to save my life using, I just left to my own devices. If I'm an intuitive eater with anything, if I intuitively eat outside of the context of abstinence, I'm going to eat nothing but processed junk food all day long. And for me, unfortunately, I had migraines, suicidal depression, infections, weight issues, cystic acne, rosacea, like cancer, like 
it was killing me. And so this effort that I was making to try and moderate and be an intuitive eater failed miserably. So then down the road, I eventually discovered like you, oh my gosh, the concept of abstinence and what are the abstinence wasn't just white sugar, that it was also flowers, right? That that was a huge piece of the equation. Once I understood that, it was very helpful. But even then in those early days, I still saw recovery, but the end goal of recovery was abstinence, sustained abstinence. And it took me years to figure out, oh my goodness, that is not recovery. Abstinence is a tool of recovery. Weighing and measuring is a tool of recovery. Recovery is when we are able to connect to peace, joy, and love. That's it, right? Like that is peace of mind. And, and so if, if you can get to peace, joy, and love and health and self-connection and a connection to a higher power of your own understanding through moderation, that you get recovery, whatever, but recovery isn't moderation. Recovery isn't abstinence. Those are both tools. And you get to decide what tools bring you to the recovery. What are you recovering? Our capacity to be self-connected, to be, to be healthy, to be vital, to be connected to people and a higher power and peace of mind, all those things, right? We're recovering the highest possible human experience and whatever tools you use that get you there, have at her. But the tool of abstinence, I love that you're drawing attention, how maligned it is because in the early days of white knuckling and trying to be abstinent and we feel more crazy and our eating disorders are worse and we're binging harder and we're more discouraged and we hate ourselves more and we're gaining more weight. It seems like that path of abstinence is making everything worse instead of better. But truthfully, it's because of the approach, the mindset, the understanding that abstinence is a tool to freedom. It it takes some nuancing and understanding around that. I don't know if you can maybe speak to that to help that mindset shift. Yes, sure. Um, I think a lot of it is around languaging. I think one of the things that I want to do that I've been doing a lot in my own community and that I would like to do increasingly publicly is to start changing the languaging around abstinence. I think, you know, I mean, obviously I'm a literature professor. I think language is everything. Ha ha ha. No, not everything. But, um, you know, the, the language around abstinence is just so, so negative. It just, um, I think it's really hard and we live that inside of our bodies. I think it's really hard for, for many of us not to automatically believe that abstinence is the problem because it is so maligned. Um, and it is so associated with, with words and concepts like control and perfection, which are, which are um, two other words that you've mentioned a couple of times. And, and um, one thing that was really important to me is to work that out in my, in my journal. Um, I, I mean, for me, I felt instant empowerment and instant relief through abstinence. Um, it, that came very quickly. And so I didn't feel, I didn't feel some of those self self doubt moments. I knew it was going to be hard, but again, I had quit smoking the year before. Um, and so I had gone through like, I, what, what, what's that phrase go, you know, you go through the wars or something like that. Anyway, I had gone through hell and back. Um, quitting smoking. It's still the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, do not recommend (laughs) never smoke. Um, really it was harder than sugared flour. Oh my gosh. By, by, by tens of magnitudes or whatever the mathematical phrase is, Um, there will never be anything harder. And it's still, it's still the, it's still the addiction that 
like I occasionally like fantasize about um, and sort of make deals in my head about. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's uh, and I'm not saying eliminating sugar and flour wasn't difficult, but I was prepped for what it was going to be like. Um, and I also didn't have any negative associations because I'm very value neutral about all of this. I don't believe that sugar is bad. I don't believe that flour is bad. Um, I don't, I don't believe in that cultural messaging. I don't believe that food is bad. I also don't believe it's good. Um, I believe it exists and, you know, I believe that there are, um, there are substances in, in certain foods that, um, basically I, I, when I eat them, I, you know, for lack of a better term, I have an allergic reaction. I cannot moderate them. I cannot process them. Um, my, my life becomes unmanageable when I eat those foods. That doesn't make them bad. It doesn't make them good. Um, and so I, I have had the benefit of, of not having to sort of work through all of that negative messaging before I could even get to a place where I could tolerate abstinence. But so I think a lot of it is around languaging, around um, deliberately divorcing the equation of abstinence and, for example, control. I mean, nobody, nobody looks at somebody, I mean, pick any other chronic health condition. Nobody looks at somebody with asthma who's having an asthma attack and says, oh, you're going to use your inhaler? How controlling. You know, you should just intuitively let your body get through the asthma attack, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think, um, you know, terms like con control are not, are just not relevant. I understand why people associate them, but we have to stop. It's not relevant. Um, or terms like perfection. I have not had a single molecule of sugar or flour for over five years. And that isn't perfect. It just isn't related to perfection. There's nothing perfect or imperfect about that. Um, and, and that the, the kind of languaging that we attach to abstinence is so harmful for people who need abstinence recovery. Um, I think another, um, oh shoot, there was, there was something else um, that I wanted to bring up around that. Anyway, hmm. hopefully it'll come back. May I prompt you? Yes, please. I'll, I'll attempt. I'll see. I, see if I can yeah. get you going again. So we were talking a bit about how to reframe abstinence, and you're talking about divorcing it from control and perfectionism. And is there other ways that we can reframe abstinence so that we can feel peaceful and grateful about it, as opposed to feeling like, oh, this is impossible and detrimental? Yes, thank you. That was the perfect prompt. Um, so one of the things that's been most empowering for me, which which I came to on my own from my own for my own background and the way that I see things. Um, I, you know, I was raised in, um, you know, by, by, by a nurse, you know, I grew up in a medical household. Um, I was raised by an ER nurse. Um, my own research is into the history of medicine. Um, I sort of perceive the world through the lens of bodies and, 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 and health. And so to me, just ref it's, it's really more about reframing addiction as a chronic health condition a chronic progressive health condition. And so reframing abstinence as, as just a, ma a health management tool, that's it. Um, you know, and, and I know I'm a little bit repetitive and I said it a couple of times, but just kind of linking it to, to this part of the conversation here. I think for me, that has been incredibly empowering. Um, it releases the, the value judgments around both addiction and abstinence. 
Um, and it allows abstinence to simply exist for what it is, which, as you've stated, is just a tool. It's a tool for managing a chronic health condition. That's it. I think that's going to be, I think if we're looking ahead in the future, 5, 10, 15 years, I think that's going to be one of the most powerful interventions in um, relanguaging and reimagining and reconceptualizing how we think about addiction itself. And then destigmatizing addiction. Um, I think that's a, I think. I think the stigmas around around addiction are just as strong as the stigmas around abstinence. And um, that's been something that's been really important to me as well as relanguaging and reconceptualizing addiction as, as totally destigmatized. I have no shame. There is nothing to be ashamed of about coming into this world in this lifetime as someone with a chronic health condition at all or someone with the chronic health condition of addiction. It just happened. That's just the way that that's just the way it happened. Um, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing bad about me. Um, there's nothing, there's no deficit. I just have a particular chronic health condition. Um, and if it isn't managed, um, it's very harmful to me and, and very harmful to the people around me potentially. Um, especially when, um, I'm thinking about things like, um, drugs and alcohol, um, and kind of what some of the fallout can be of that when, when, when my, um, condition isn't managed. Um, and so that reframing for me, I think is, um, has a lot of, has a lot of power and a lot of potential. Yeah, I love that. And I think one of the other ways that we can start to reframe addiction as well is when we think about the fact that our brains can light up and get really jacked up and excited about substances. Those same brains can get jacked up and lit up and excited about other things that we don't come into this world with brains that are flat, that can't experience pleasure in really intensely beautiful ways. But what we don't understand in the early days of recovery is that as we progressed along the path, our, our focus, our capacity to experience pleasure becomes more narrow and becomes very, very focused on just this pathetic little substance that over time doesn't even make us happy anymore. And then we just can't even imagine that anything would make us happy. But those beautiful addict brains of ours, man, take three, two, three years down the road and a sunset and the chirp of birds in the spring and you're like, Wow, right? Like life comes back online and these beautiful addicted brains of ours can get hooked into healthy things. Like there's no way you got your PhD, Emily, probably without those same qualities that made you addicted applied to a work ethic around studying and writing and right? Like you use that beautiful addict brain of yours and you're using it right now. You, you're a professor. You don't need to be doing this interview. You don't have a book. You've got nothing to sell. You've got no skin in the game, except that you know you've walked this path and you have some life experience and some insights that your heart wants to share. And it probably brings you joy. Enjoy yes. so much more than any joy we ever had when we were going off the deep end with Black Forest Cake, which was my thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, we can still have joy, but we don't understand that when we talk about addiction, that beautiful addict brain of yours just needs to find something like surfing or studies or something. And that is possible for us to be happier and lit up in ways that rejuvenate and strengthen mm -hmm. our lives and make them better and better, not worse and worse. And um, what you're reminding me of 
all of that. Absolutely. Um, our, and yes, I, I tell people at the beginning of this journey that um, the brain heals and the brain's capacity for joy um, increases and you can feel it increasing. And that um, sustained abstinence um, gives your brain that chance to heal and that the healing um, doesn't really stop. There's not like this ceiling that you hit uh, where like, oh good, my brain is healed and, and this is the most amount of joy I will experience or whatever. Um, that like, um, I often, um, I often use the phrase, um, things like, um, there, there are just vistas of discovery that await the, the perpetually healing brain. Um, it's, it's such a beautiful existence to, um, to kind of sit inside that, that brain. Um, and that, that there is so much joy around, um, you know, around the bend. I, you know, I've t I have, um, you know, it's interesting because people come out of the woodwork when, when, you know, when you kind of, um, when you're like the one person in someone's life who's on the abstinence journey, uh, people start to kind of come to you. And so I've had um, just different people over the years kind of come to me and, and especially around alcohol, because that, um, again, the sugar and flour for me um, wasn't actually the super difficult piece. I was never a foodie. Um, you know, I was just a hardcore addict. I ate disgusting junk food. Um, and by disgusting, I don't mean morally wrong or morally bad, but just, it tasted bad to me. It didn't even taste good. It was, it was literally just a vehicle for a high. Um, you know, it, I, I didn't miss, there were very few things I ever missed, um, food wise. Um, but, but alcohol, um, was a major, major, uh, struggle for me. It, it, um, oh my gosh, it's difficult for me to describe how terrified I was to eliminate alcohol from my life as a part of my food addiction recovery. Um, and so just, uh, you know, for folks who, um, may not know, um, many abstinence-based food addiction programs, um, also include the removal of alcohol, um, because alcohol is a kind of works the same way as refined sugar in the body. And so that for me was, um, you know, it, it certainly, it was the, it was the thing that finally got me to be able to confront my alcoholism and my, um, the relationship, my relationship to alcohol, um, and it's increasing, um, toxicity and, and actual danger to my health. Um, and I was terrified to let it go. And I did all of the stages of grief with alcohol. I bargained the hell out of that. You know, the first couple of weeks I was like, "Ugh, I'll start drinking again. Like when I have a handle on this whole abstinence thing, you know, with food or whatever. And then Ugh, I'll just drink, you know, on like holidays and like on vacation. Um, and the whole time I was bargaining, I was remaining abstinent. Um, but still, you know, in the future, like, you know, not today, but maybe tomorrow, which is another kind of um, well-known recovery phrase. And, um, going through all the grief, um, you know, abstinence requires, I talk, I sometimes talk about abstinence as a kind of death. Um, that's the other thing too, I think that where people sort of get, um, obstructed before they even get off the ground, because I think we're also afraid of abstinence and the finality of it, that we've we've made all these little hacks around like having to deal with the fact that it's forever, you know, like it's just today, it's just today, it's not forever. 
And that's fine. That's a good tool. Um, But for me, that wasn't a useful permanent tool. I had to be able at some point in time to say never again um, and to accept that eliminating addictive substances is a kind of death. It is, you are leaving behind the person that you were and you are, and you don't know the person who is coming. You literally don't know. And you don't know if it's going to be a lifetime of misery. Um, You don't know if it's going to be a lifetime of sadness and depression and feeling left out and like, you know, uh, I can't have the glass of wine when my friends go out and uh, my life is miserable. You don't know. Um, And I was certainly convinced that that, you know, my whole life would just be not worth living. And that sounds very melodramatic, but I'm, you know, that is exactly how I felt. I was not at all certain life would be worth living without alcohol. And I wasn't at all certain I'd be a person. I thought I would just not be a person at all. If that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> no, say more. What does that mean? You thought like you, you, you're like the essence of you would disappear. That you thought alcohol was so tied to, to who you, your personality. And I think people feel that way about the foods. You know, I think it's relatable because I think, um, you know, if there's certain celebratory foods or certain family traditions or certain friend traditions, like there are certain foods and beverages that fall under um, sugar and flour that. Um, people feel like they will not be a person without them, that there's that life is not livable and that um, they don't have a personality. They don't have, they don't have an emotional tie to humanity without being able to engage in those behaviors and those, and those substances. Totally. And I, I can totally relate to that. Totally. It, that wasn't, it wasn't like that for me with the food, but absolutely with alcohol. Yeah. Um, and so just providing, um, both providing the example that there is, that there is the other side, that there is that joy and and just wait that out. Just, just wait it out. I promise, you know, that the healing comes if you let yourself, you know, get there and also accepting doing that really difficult inner work, that really difficult grieving that yes, this is a turning point. This, there isn't a hack here. You can't, you can't just, um, you know, abstinence, abstinence is, it, it can feel much more, um, much more serious than um, other, other approaches because, because it is a new way of life. It just is. And my advice and my experience was to not try to hack that and to not try to pretend that that wasn't the case and to see it as an opportunity and a gift. My, the person I was wasn't working for me and my way of life wasn't working for me. And I had so many things inside me that I thought were possible that I'd never been able to access. And so I let my, I let that part of myself experience that, that death and that rebirth. And that was what was required. And that's okay. Like, that's actually so rad. I don't know why we're not giving that more cred. You know what I mean? Um, I, I often say that addicts in recovery you know how like it's, it's everyone's desire to get a second chance at life and like addicts in recovery get that. Like I literally got to raise my life and then rebuild it from the ground up. Like that's, I mean, that's really cool. Oh my gosh. It's such an amazing, exciting way of, of phrasing it. And you know, I, I, we, we say a lot in the recovery rooms that, that when we say no to sugar and flour, we're saying yes to so much more, right? When we're so focused on being deprived of whatever the sugar and flour concoction has been turned into, 
Sure, we're saying we're, we're depriving ourselves of that. But when we're eating it, what are we depriving ourselves of? We never look at that deprivation. We're always obsessed about being deprived of these treats, this all these processed foods. But we're not looking at what we're depriving ourselves, self-confidence, health, great sleep, joy, uh, the, the capacity to, you know, raise your, what did you say? Raise your life to the bottom, like, like just start over to be, to rebirth yourself, right? To become somebody you didn't even know existed, to feel happier than you thought what you was even possible. Because high is different than happy, isn't it, Emily? It's different than, high is different than happy. We can get high and spazzy and excited and it feels like we're happy and then it crashes. And then when we discover the happiness, it just comes from being connected to ourselves and living the lives that we love. It feels different, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I connect that with, you know, a lot of the, you know, neuroscience and and, um, brain chemistry research around dopamine. For me and my understanding of addiction, um, you know, centers around, you know, I think of myself as someone who was born with a brain that, that, um, doesn't produce and regulate dopamine in a, in a neurotypical fashion. And so I have a very vexed and fraught relationship to joy and pleasure and happiness. Um, you know, I, I, in early childhood, it was very obvious that I had mood disorders, um, that my ability to regulate emotionally was not neurotypical. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And so it has been an interesting to me because that is actually part of what I was afraid of is giving up the highs um, and even giving up the lows uh, for, for what, something I didn't know. And for something that people always used to call contentment, ugh, which I always used to grimace at, like, who wants that? You know, I want X, I want ecstasy. Yeah. Um, I want to be high. Give me bliss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and realizing that, um, now that I have a brain that produces and regulates dopamine um, to, to, to its maximum potential, which still is not neurotypically, and that's okay, um, but to its maximum potential, um, you know, finding just um, uh, just the, the, the absolute beauty in that. I also want to make sure to say, as somebody, um, you know, who I really am passionately value neutral about the body and about health, that happiness isn't a requirement, um, that I believe. And I, and I also don't believe that health is a requirement. I, I don't think, um, I, I don't think that, that anybody owes the world their health. I don't think that anybody owes the world their happiness. Um, and I don't, for me personally, my goal in entering addiction, um, abstinence-based recovery was not health. Um, I did have a lot of, you know, health problems or what are viewed by the medical field as health problems. Um, and I, you know, over the years, I had a different relationship to how I felt about that. But I never had a goal of becoming physically healthy. And I didn't even know I could become psychologically healthy. So I don't know if that was a goal of mine either. Um, and so just, just to be able to capture the part of our potential community that um, doesn't want to be told to be healthy and doesn't want to be pressured to be healthy, there is a place for us too. And that um, you may find yourself becoming healthy as a, as a kind of symptom of this, or you may not. And that's, none of that is good or bad or right or wrong. Um, and, and that too, I think is a pretty, um, it is a view that doesn't get brought up often in recovery circles and in abstinence um, circles. And, um, you know, not all of us are healthy, you know, in my, in my food addiction recovery community, a lot of people talk about, um, 
you know, some of the victories of recovery. And a lot of those victories are physical. And a lot of those victories are physical in a way that's like very mainstream. Um, you know, like I can run up, I can run up the stairs now. And like, that's what keeps me going in recovery. And like, there are plenty of people on earth who have bodies and, and, and limbs and, and bodily presentations that no matter what, they'll never run upstairs. And that that is not a measure of, of health or not. Um, and so that just for, just for people in our community who feel alienated by like the talk of health and by the discourse of health, that there is also a place to practice abstinence-based recovery and not think about health at all. I mean, I really, yeah, I, I very rarely think about health. I, I, I do have a different kind of health than I did when I was actively addicted. Um, but I still kind of, I don't use health as my barometer. Um, and, and that reminds me of something too, um, that I wanted to, uh, comment on from earlier is that, um, you talked about the things, you know, you talked about how, you know, your addiction was killing you, um, and the many things that were killing you, um, about being actively engaged in your addiction. And I think another, another thing to contribute, another line item to contribute to that is that for me, the way I think of it is that what was killing me is that I was chained to my addiction is that I was chained to the substances. What, whatever the side effects of that, of that was, whether it was weight gain, arthritis, um, uh, heartburn, there were plenty of side effects, but the real thing that was killing me was that my whole life revolved around basically one thing, which was how do I get my next hit? How do I get this hit? And so I just wasn't participating in life. I just wasn't having a life. And that to me was, um, became unsupportable. And so I had to find a different way to, to re-enter life. Uh, and I really, really get that, Emily. And um, I think it's clear. I might just add to it in case people are hearing that and thinking, what, are you, what is she talking about health neutral? How could you be health neutral? How could you be weight loss neutral? I have 150 pounds to lose. How could I not want that for myself through all this heroic effort of unhooking from these refined carbohydrates? And I just want to add to that because honestly, as a coach, the people that struggle the most and relapse the most are the ones that are attached to outcomes. Even me wanting to sort of have my migraines go away and be less intense or my depression go away, right? That I, I was relapsing constantly throughout all those focuses on the outcomes. It was only when I did exactly what you're describing. I did it because I have an addiction. And in my heart of hearts and in my soul, I know that when I, when I in any way engage with those substances, I no longer have control on how much I'm going to eat, when I'm going to eat it. Like I just, it takes over the chain the feeling like I've lost my freedom here. And that's the only good reason for us to be abstinent truly is because we're on the addiction spectrum and this addiction in and of itself. So if any other bonus things, like if we lose weight and our migraines disappear, they're bonus. But as long as we're focused on those outcomes, we're more likely to relapse. I've seen it as a coach over and over and over. Absolutely. And, and partly because, um, they're not, if, if you really look at human behavior, those outcomes are not, um, they're not as seductive as people think they are. And <laughs> they don't override the addiction. I mean, you know, it, sometimes it helps people when we talk about food addiction, sometimes it helps to like, think about other addictions, whether it's alcohol addiction, drug addiction, and think about how, um, one's whole life becomes 
you know, organized around procuring, ingesting, and experiencing the substance. Um, and like, for example, something like weight loss isn't, isn't more interesting to me than that, than the high. And that's certainly not over the long term. Um, and I mean, you know, that, that isn't a goal of mine at all, but you know, for someone who is, I mean, I see time and time again, people whose goal is weight loss. Um, and I see that ultimately being not, not more, not more seductive and not more powerful than the addiction. Absolutely. So beautifully put. Absolutely. It isn't, it isn't a sustainable big why they think it is, but it isn't. And it's only years of us being in these rooms, walking the path of recovery that we've had to discover that the ones who get abstinent and stay abstinent peacefully and in perpetuity are ones that are only doing it for one reason. It's because it's their truth. Something is awakened and they've realized that whenever I ingest sugar, flour, process refined carbohydrates, I do not go to bed peaceful because it's violating something inside me that says that just ain't right. And it isn't, it isn't enough to want to, of course, it's great outcomes that come from breaking up with sugar and flour. And I disagree with you. I love where you're at. I'm not there yet. I hope I get there one day when I think of sugar and flour as neutral, I think of them as like deadly little can yeah, anyways, molecules, but I also appreciate that it's not helpful that the neutrality is probably more supportive of recovery in the long term to not be fighting, to just, just honor the truth. I know this is an addiction and I want my freedom. And that's the only, only reason that really, at the end of the day, I think really sustains peaceful abstinence. I think. Yeah. You agree. Love it. Oh, you love it. You're okay. <laughs> we may get there someday. We may we may in 10, 20, 50, hundred years get to the place where we can maybe once again, assign value to certain substances and say that the, those substances aren't great. Um, but we're certainly not there right now as a culture. And I think it's, um, absolutely detrimental to the overall health and wellness of the movement to, um, linger in, in, um, value value laden approaches to food. It's just food has, you know, value judgments about food have been used for so long to control so many people's bodies in such a negative way that we have to scrub value out of the equation altogether. If we're ever going to get back to true, um, equity, honestly, um, in, in embodiment. Mm. Well, that is entirely what my summit is not about. <laughs> I have to say that's okay. But, I'm, I'm an outlier. Enough. Yeah, you're but fair enough. Like it's food for thought, right? Because I have all these experts that come in and talk about, okay, when you eat sugar, this is what's happening in your brain and your blood and your, your pancreas and your liver and your, your cells and in your heart, right? Like there's all these links, but mind you, I would, I would probably argue that the white refined molecule of sugar is no longer a food. It really is just a drug. It's you take the poppy seed, you refine it, you get opium. It's a pretty powerful drug. There were lots of people hooked on opium and lost their lives, right? You refine it more, you get morphine. You refine that more, you get heroin. If you take sugar cane and beets and you refine it the same way you refine heroin, you get little white refined sugar. It isn't a food anymore, any more than heroin is a poppy seed. 
right? It's truly a, a, a drug chemical that no kidding, it's addictive. Heroin's addictive, so is sugar, same. So maybe you and I could agree that sugar, the little white refined molecule is no longer a food. Maybe. Certainly. I And I believe that. Yes. Um, and yeah, processed sugar is not a food at all. Um, but, um, and, and, and I absolutely, I mean, there's no argument about the observable effects of some of these substances on the body. Um, it's that um, what keeps me in abstinence and what keeps me in recovery is, is just languaging that a little bit differently um, and saying that um, the effect that those substances have on my organs and on my, um, my neurology um, prohibits my body from existing to its, to its fullest capacity. And that that's something that I don't particularly enjoy that I would, I would like to, um, yeah. And that's like the most value I'll put on it. I got it. I got it. What you're saying is there's nothing wrong with sugar. I just don't really like how it feels in my body. Yes. Totally different. Totally different. Very. Yes. And how it, and how it hijacks my, my life and, and prevents me from being engaged in life. Emily, you are a gem. Let me tell you, I, you, I've had people tell me she is something that, that, that Dr. August, you, you lived up to that highest of hopes I had for you. So thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your honesty and your insights and being the outlier and for your time and beauty. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, I loved it. <laughs> and we'll get a website for Emily when she gets it up and running and we will all go out and buy her poetry book. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you would like more interviews, more information and more inspiration on how to break up with sugar, go to my YouTube channel, kick sugar coach or my website, kicksugarcoach.com. See you next week.